asked me yesterday to share with you what I have called the axioms of the modern mind. In other words, what is behind contemporary society in terms of philosophy, of mentality. And there are ten axioms that will summarize the present generation. The first is the fact that values are relative. We mentioned there are no absolutes. The only absolute is there are no absolutes. Everything is relative. And everything must stand trial for its life. This is why the average college campus is anti-everything. Anti-flag, anti-American, anti-establishment, anti-government, church, you name it, we're against it. Anything that's traditional is up for grabs. Nothing sacred. Secondly, what can't be proved can't be believed. If you can't stick it in a test tube, if you can't put it beneath a microscope, then it's seriously suspect. It's got to be open to scientific investigation. The third, scientific knowledge is certain. This has led to the worship of the shrine of scientism. Now the interesting thing is this society, men, is so fluid that it is constantly in a process of change. And this is a good case in point. I have been conversing at length with professors in leading universities across America and they are fighting for their life, particularly in the scientific realm. Because the average young person seriously questions the guy with the little white coat. He's beginning to think he's playing games in order to avoid answering the more basic question of why. <coughs> so this is in the process of disintegrating. Axiom, this particular axiom. In other words, it's being shot out from under the average individual in the academic realm, for example. And Schaefer gives some tremendous material, as you know, in this area. Do you want us to interact with your Penn Easter now? Uh, I think maybe it'd be better if we get them all before you so you see them in relationship, and then uh, we can have at it. Okay? All right. Number four. There's no knowledge of existence after death. Now, some of you guys are working with the present group of students, and you are beginning to see what a lot of people have never picked up in terms of message. And that is, a lot of these things are in a process of attack. This is another case in point witness the extreme rise of interest in the occult, spiritism, etc., the stars. The interest in the world beyond. 
Number five, real means seeing and handle. And you can see how that is in line with this whole scientific orientation. Though, again, this is being blasted, and it's being blasted by such groups as the Jesus Freaks. Because the interesting thing in the Jesus movement is that the whole orientation is experiential. And a lot of it has no basis, in fact, biblical or otherwise. They could care less. Don't bother me with the facts. I had an experience. And to us, the real thing is not what's seen or handled, it's what I've experienced. So, you see, they're beginning to cut the ground up from under this axiom. Six, man is insignificant. Now, if you are taking some notes, draw a line between number three and number six because there's a direct cause-effect relationship. You see, whenever man worships science, you will always reduce man to a machine. And that's what's happened. Now, this is an interesting phenomenon and has profound implications for the cause of Christ. I'm sure you are aware of how it got started, but if you look at any protest movement today, I don't care what the issue is, you will always see, to this day, the sign, don't fall, spindle, or mutilate. That's almost become a motto. You know how it got started, of course. It got started on a leading university campus where a guy tried to get some help on some deeper issues. And he couldn't get an appointment with anybody. And so in exasperation, the guy crumpled up his IBM card. And when he threw that into the IBM machine, it threw everything into a tissue. The whole place came unglued. The president came to see him. Two vice presidents came to see him. Three deans came to see him. He never saw so many people in all of his life. And this became a symbol to the present generation. And the interesting thing is, and one of the great contributions you make in an ads is with your strong person-oriented ministry, this feeds in the area of the greatest need of our, general, of our generation. That's depersonalization. In the average church, a guy is screaming for somebody to pay attention to him. Seven, I cannot help being what I am. And if you're working in counseling, you can particularly appreciate this because this is what we've been talking to on several occasions. That I'm a pervert? Friend, don't blame me. I'm the product. You don't like your product? That's your problem. My mother. It's the church. It's the organization. It's the government. It's anybody or anything. They all become convenient dumping grounds. But don't cause me to be responsible. Seven, eight, freedom means doing what I please. And I spelled this out in part for you, but let's hit it once more. You see, this is the product 
of a person who has no cause-effect sequence. It's the product of existentialism. And the interesting thing is that the present society is deeply infected with existentialism, whether the guy can spell it or not. He didn't know anything about it in terms of concept, but he's deeply affected by it because the mass media communicate in this area. Existentialism simply defined as this. The past is irrelevant. The future is uncertain. Therefore, you live for the now. That's how it came to be called the now generation. This kid I told you about who blew his mind on drugs with 159 IQ. See, the last thing in the world he ever thought about was blowing his mind. And the whole point at this level at which you need to confront kids when you are teaching them on a campus is you are free to make your choices, but you are not free to escape the consequences. Freedom always has fences. It does not mean doing what I please, or to use their expression, doing your own thing. Ninth, to be certain about religion is arrogant. You can be certain about everything in the world, but just don't get too dogmatic about your Christianity. And again, that is under serious fire. And these Jesus people are coming in like a flood. Because that's the only thing they are certain about. And it's really something to watch them. You know, they carry the Bible. You remember, some of you guys are old enough to remember the old fundamentalist cliches and mores and so forth where we painted Jesus saves on the rocks and the guy wore the sandwich boards in downtown, you know, parish, uh, hell is real and all of this kind of stuff. The interesting thing, you go out in these groups, they got it all over the place. Bigger the Bible, the better they like it. Handle with care, explosives within. Kid carries around like this. They wear sandwich boards. They paint the sides of their cars. Jesus saved. Don't go to hell. Christ loves you. <laughs> you know, the kind of thing that you would begin to think, man, that would be offensive. They could care less. They've made all of those decisions. They could care less what you think about their appearance. They laugh at you for laughing at them. They're almost like, you know, the monkey on the inside and the man on the outside. Which one is enjoying it more. <laughs> and to them, the only thing they've got in terms of certainty is what they would call their religious experience. And that's everything to them. Tenth and last, the laws of nature determine everything. And by the way, that's why most kids in this generation are fatalistic. Leroy and I were talking about the situation at Boulder. The philosophy of this generation, men, is a philosophy of despair. And Camus and John Paul Sartre and company are the great exponents of this. It's really a practical form of fatalism. <coughs> in which the guy says, you can't help it. In fact, it's interesting to see, this is why there has been a movement away from violence. Did you see a recent pronouncement by the Black Panthers? We're going to stop being violent and we're going to start going to church. 
That's an interesting twist. You know why? Because they suddenly discovered they're fighting something that they can't win. And so they're trying to take an altogether different tack. And the point is, you know, it's already determined. Now, this has all kinds of implications. In fact, this, in my judgment, is one of the major reasons why suicide right now is the highest cause of divorce on the average college campus. They're really taking their life like crazy. And in most cases, if you've ever worked with this phenomenon, you will discover that it's merely a desperate call for help. That's why when a kid tries to commit suicide, what does he do? He slashes his wrist. The lousiest way to take your life. You want to take your life, friend? You got a building in your campus with six, seven, eight stories? Oh, yeah, we got several of them. Fine. Get up on any one above seven stories. I'll guarantee you, you'll make it. So he takes a bottle of pills. But the interesting thing, he always, you know, just takes half the bottle. What's the matter? Can't you count? So he's not interested in taking his life. He's screaming for somebody who will pay attention. We had a kid who tried to take his life. A couple of our students had flowed into his life with interest. Finally landed over in Parkland Hospital. And these students went over to see him. And we finally came out of consciousness. First thing he said was he looked straight in the eye and saw these three guys around his bed. And he said, my God, you're not here. And when he finally came to enough consciousness where he could talk more coherently, he said, I can't believe you love me that much. Here's a guy you see desperately crying for somebody who can convince him they really give a darn. They care that much. Now, these ten axioms are largely woven into the fabric of present-day mentality, and mass media have been very successful as a means of communicating these ideas. So when you're teaching, preaching, dealing with people's issues, if you are not speaking in these areas, then you're scratching people where they do not itch. You're answering the questions nobody's asking. These are the problems, basically, clawing men's souls to shred today. Now, some of you guys wanted to ask some questions. Yes, Russ. Uh, it's interesting. Item number two. In 1949, uh, part of mathematics, they proved a new theorem that said in any axiomatic system, there have to exist theorems which are true but cannot be proven. So as... Uh, Very interesting. Uh, the axioms themselves defeat themselves. Right. Because you have, you know, number one, where you start taking it around in a relativistic circle. Nothing is absolute, including the axiom. Could you uh, tell us a little more about the Jesus movement? I don't, I don't know anything about it. No. Yes, I can tell you quite a bit about it. It really runs the gamut. It runs the gamut from the sheer ridiculous to the sheer profound. And you got everything in between. But I would say its primary hang-up is that it's totally experience-oriented, with very little biblical orientation. And the men who are really making an impact in the movement are those who are willing to go among these people and teach them the Word of God, and build them up, and cause them to grow to the place where they get some maturity and some perspective. 
And then I think you are seeing some rather significant things come out, because usually these people are people who have made basic decisions. The kinds of things you're trying to get people to commit themselves to, they've already made. See, they're not hung up with materialism. They're not hung up with reputation, with embarrassment. They're not hung up with status. What they're really looking for is something worth giving their life to. My concern is that so much of it, I think, will end up with people with trashed-up spiritual experiences and saying, I tried it once. And I don't think they've tried it at all. They're just like a lot of college kids who say, I'm chucking up on my faith. I say, really? You sure you know you're rejecting the right thing? Are you rejecting your faith, or are you rejecting the faith that has been foisted upon you by your parents? you got a caricature of Christianity. You better make sure you're rejecting the right thing. And in most cases, they're off on a tangent somewhere. But it's rapidly spreading. They tend to concentrate naturally in your warmer climates. However, they are moving now pretty much across the country. And in the summer, they move. I was just up in Winnipeg, and they're covered over there with them. In Toronto, you've always had a substantial group. But when it gets cold, you know, it's a little rough to survive with their communal type of living often and so forth and just living out on the streets or in the parks. And so they tend to move down south. We got a fantastic collection of them in Texas. Uh, Southern California, you almost think they're covered with them. You know, what else is there? And they have some very interesting groups. I've spoken to them. You know what the interesting thing about them? They want no humor, no stories. Just teach the Word. Nothing less than an hour. And you come at the end of an hour and they say, Right on, man! <laughs> I was with a group three and a half hours till finally I almost dropped over from sheer exhaustion. They're plying me with questions. But as open, you know, as you could possibly get California area through a number of churches that have moved out among them. And the same thing has happened in our area with a few guys at the seminary who had this kind of an orientation and who have a concern for them and who are willing to expose themselves to them and go out and minister to them. But I would say you'd make a terrific investment. You would be amazed how much response you get from them. They're not opposed. But they do need direction. Badly they need direction. Because you can see they come out of this very fluid type of background. And they really need something that's got some conviction. In fact, they need the discipline. That's really their greatest hang-up. they got all of this tremendous commitment, but how do you focus it? Well, it's a little hard to focus commitment unless you've got some channels. 
Otherwise, it's just like having Niagara Falls without a hydroelectric plant. All of the power going over the dam, but, you know, nothing to harness it. And this is really where they are. In fact, you will discover that you'll have a harder job every year goes by in your ministry as a navigator leader with kids out of this society. This is our discovery at the seminary. Not with commitment, but with the disciplines. Because this is a non-disciplined group. They don't even know what you're talking about. And all of a sudden they discover, man, I got all of this, you know, commitment and I love Jesus and I want to share it with the world. I don't care what they think. And he can't get the baby together. He can't get himself up in the morning. You know, we announce a meeting, he can't even arrive. What kind of questions are they asking? They're asking very, very perceptive questions, Lee. They're asking questions, for example... Not so much concerning the authority of the scripture as to they're committed to this. What does it teach? What does it tell me I ought to be doing? What does it tell me with respect to the future? What does it tell me in terms of values for my life? They're really asking some of the most basic questions. It's like we were talking about yesterday. They're really asking the kinds of questions you get in popular music of the more serious variety. What are you doing at the school to cope with this problem? You're talking about... Oh, what we're doing at the school in terms of the discipline problem. You could have gone all day without asking that, Dad. <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, I don't think we're doing a whole lot. There are some of us who are interested in this and so who work on a personal basis with students to try to develop it. And we go through the traditional shotgun forms. You know, we got grade books, grades, all of the other 45s you have in the arsenal. But you see, what you discover is you can put your, a guy through all of this and he comes at the end of the thing and gets out on his own and can't function. There are no grades, no exams. No prof that says, now. And so you're back to what we've been talking about a lot in the morning. Can you develop self-discipline? If not, you're out of business. It's a self-defeating program. And this is why, for example, in my course, I take absolutely no attendance. I just absolutely blast my colleagues out of the water. You know, I am probably the most hated man on the faculty for this. I take absolutely no attendance. And I look the guy straight in the eye and say, you can cut any time you want. Be my guest. I'm not running a kindergarten. If you don't know when to show up, friend, it's about time you learn. The interesting thing is they come to my classes like crazy when I don't ask them to do it. <laughs> then you get another one where the guy finds he can cut so many times and he'll never miss on one. He's a mathematic perfectionist. <laughs> Quarter of a point more, I'm gone. <laughs> you know, you're almost back to this idea with the sign on the wall, do not spit here. And you look beneath, and there it is, all over the place. <laughs> and you come in a lovely place like this, and there's no sign, do not spit here. I haven't seen anybody since I've been here spit on the floor. <laughs> because I am finding that one of the basic keys to discipline, my friend, and motivation, is that you've got to turn this guy on on a much deeper level. Or else you're just giving him lollipops and brownie points for coming through. You've got to have deeper satisfaction. 
All right, now this afternoon, let's continue our study together. The last time we probed the intellectual area, and this afternoon, at least to get started, I'd like to probe the social area. And let me give you three principles again, and then we'll open it up and you can fire away like crazy and we'll get embroiled in a discussion and a time of sharing. First of all, enrich your circle of friends. Let me give you three verses out of Proverbs. Proverbs 17 and verse 17, A friend loveth at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 18:24. He who would have friends must show himself friendly. In Proverbs 27 and verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now I ask you this. How many friends do you have? truth of the matter is you have very few. You can count them on one hand. There is a vast difference, men, between friends and acquaintances. You have thousands of acquaintances. I have only a handful of friends. You know how I define a friend? I define a friend as the man who can tell me my most glaring weakness in a gracious manner. I define a friend as the person with whom I can share my most heretical idea. And he never says, oh, watch it, Hendricks. Hold it there. Getting liberal. And you have very few of those. Now, I think you have different levels of friendship, speaking now in the broadest sense. I think you have a center area where, which you might call intimate. And uh, most of us have all too few of them. These are the kinds of people with whom you can bury your heart that you're never under any threat. That you never keep score. Let's see, whose house were we in last? Remember, we invited you to our house, so make sure you invite us to yours. This is the kind of person you plug out for two months and when you come back, you call them up and say, Hi, how we doing? And it's just back as if you talked to them last night. Night. Good night. Where have you been? How come you haven't called me? The second level is what I call the personal level. And what I would usually call my acquaintances. And the third level is what I call the level of cultivated friends. That is people you are cultivating in terms of your personal relationship with them. 
And a movement, basically, is from the circumference to the center. So I ask you, for example, how many intimate friends do you have? And I mean by that outside of Nav Circle. <laughs> See, one of your dangers, and we've spoken at this about this at previous conferences, is the danger of inbreeding. You know, the finest ways of avoiding that develop some very close, intimate friends outside of NAV circles. Be the greatest enrichment to you as a person and to the organization. Because it will keep you balanced. You always tend to, tell, to develop tunnel vision when you limit your ministry or your life to one area. For instance, how many friends do you have among Crusade, Young Life, InterVarsity, etc., etc.? Or, how many pastor friends do you have? Now, how many guys are you so close to that you could call up at any time and have the guy drop over to your house, or you could drop in on his house at 11.30 at night and he wouldn't hit the fan? You're that close with him. Now, the interesting thing is, this guy says, now, how do we win pastors? Well, I'll tell you, you don't win pastors by failing to build a friendship with them. By getting close enough to them that you can develop this kind of a relationship. And may I suggest for you the importance in developing friends at different age levels? There is no such thing as a generation gap in a body of Christ. Have you learned that? I mean by experience. How many older men do you have as real close friends? You know the great contributions of my children's life? We brought men like this. We have systematically invited to our home men 60, 65, 70. Boy, it's been tremendous. We had a guy in our home, 74 years of age. Bob, my oldest son, looked him straight in the eye and said, calling him by name, if you had to live your life over, what would you do differently? He said, I would live it exactly as I have for Jesus Christ. I will die a fulfilled man. He said, and I didn't say a man without mistakes. You know what this says to a teenager? We had a doctor in our home some time ago. He's a leading surgeon in our community. My kids are all sitting around. And by the way, I have a basic principle. I would highly advise it to you. If you ever come to my home... And my kids, you will see four pair of eyes staring you right down the throat. Because you are significant people. And if you come to my home, I want my children exposed to significant people. And I don't file them off in a side room. Go get lost. They're right there. Have been. Down through the years. Because some of the most important values in their life, they picked up from this. Leading surgeon in our community. Sits right across from him. And my boy at the time was quite interested in medicine. Looks at him and says, Dr. Mabry, what would you say about this? And he talks to him. He said, son, I think medicine is merely a means to a larger end. My primary purpose is to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Now, he's not a guy who's a second-rate boy, you know, who just happens to be a Christian because he can't be anything else. He's a guy at the top of the pile who says to a kid, I've made a value judgment, and I'd like to share it with you. So that's very, very important. Missionaries coming through your area. 
But you know, the best thing that we've discovered as a family to develop in this cultivated area, we invite unsaved people. Down through the years, we have always had unsaved people in our home with our kids. And you know what this does? This gives a kid's heart, keeps a kid's heart sensitive toward the lost world. This is the name of the game. This is what it's all about. And they get some very important lessons. We invite teachers to come to our home. And as I'll show you in a moment, use it. I want to throw out a study for you men that's been very, very enriching to me. And the process is so much more important than the product that I'd like you to get involved in it yourself. You know what I'd suggest you study? Study the concept of hospitality in the New Testament. It is not peripheral, it's central. It's one of the primary requisites of an elder. Given to hospitality. Because hospitality is a very essential feature. Your home ought to be a center of evangelism. It ought to be a center of fellowship. Now, I'm not interested in embarrassing anybody, but I want you to get the picture, because here I am, a guy who is not on a navigator staff. I couldn't be more sold out to what you guys are doing. I don't know how I could spend my life any more profitably. But there's a guy sitting here by the name of Walt Hendrickson, and you know, and he knows, and everybody else knows, and I'm covered over with responsibilities. I got all kinds of commitments. I get so many balls in the air sometimes, you know, they're coming crashing down around my head. But that guy has consistently taken the initiative to contact me and to stay with me to get a date when I can come over to his house for dinner or when we can meet together at a restaurant or when he can come over to my office and spend some time with me. Now you think that he did this for me. I'm telling you that I am the one who has been greatly enriched as a result of the exposure. When's the last time you took the initiative? to take some guy who desperately needs what you have to contribute. Not to cram something down his throat, but just to expose yourself to him. Pick his brain. He knows something you don't know. Take that by faith. Spend some time with him. Learn at his feet, and you will discover you end up with a ministry like you've never expected. You know what I've discovered? I've discovered in my own community that my wife and I have invited people that we almost roar. I live in a very, very modest $9,000 home. It's just a little frame job stuck way out in a community. But the interesting thing is I've had the chief of police in the city of Dallas in my home. I've had prominent surgeons in my home. I've had cowboys in my home. I'm talking about players. Uh, you wouldn't believe who I've had in my home. And the interesting thing is, and we've never had an exception, a guy will walk out the front door and say, you know, my friend, I'm so honored that you would invite me to come. And, you know, I'm crawling under the floor saying, <laughs> you know, man, how honored I am that you would take your time to come to my home. You know what I've discovered? I've discovered that the higher a guy goes in his profession, whatever his sphere is, the lonelier he is. And most people just stay away from him. They're scared to death of him. And the guy's dying for somebody who will spend a little time with him and manifest a little interest in him. And so we invited two of our public school teachers when my kids were small. We invited them to come. And we threw a party for them. And my kids made all of the favors and they wrote the poetry and so forth. And these people were going through the ceiling. 
Neither one of them a believer, and we had family worship. Or what we have done is had people from other countries come to our home. You know, you can go to any university in your community and get a list of foreign students and invite them over to your home. I had a Japanese guy in our home some time ago, cooked us a Japanese meal. We had a tour of the world on our Friday night family night program. Had family worship. The guy went back. I said, how long have you been in the United States? He said, oh, about a year and a half. He says, you know, the interesting thing is this is the first time I've ever been in a Christian home. Now, here's a guy from a foreign country. You talk about an opportunity for witness. These to me are choice. Second, flow into the lives of people. You know, I have a passage of Scripture that I, I think I turn to once a week. I'll tell you why. I turn to it because my heart leaps to this. You turn to the book of Philippians for just a sec. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 19 and 20. You remember Philippians chapter 2 opens with the model of Jesus Christ who emptied himself, who became a servant, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Then he gives a series of illustrations, his own personal illustration. And now in verse 19 he says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. Now here is the verse that does it. For I have no man like-minded who will care naturally, honestly, openly for your state. For they all seek their own. Not the things of Jesus Christ. You know, this is most remarkable. My friend, the Apostle Paul did not have a restricted circle of friends. Just look at the end of Romans. Look at any of the other epistles. They're loaded with names. And yet of all of the circle of friends and fellow laborers, he said, I have no one who's in this guy's leg who naturally you almost get the impression who doesn't even have to work at it. It's so much a part of his life. Flows into the life of others because he's not primarily concerned about himself. He's been delivered from himself. Himself is in the process of concern for others. The other passage is Galatians 6 and verse 10. So then as we have opportunity, let us work that which is good toward all men, but especially toward those that are of the household of faith. When is the last time you wrote a letter of appreciation or encouragement to another individual, saved or unsaved? You know, I've been teaching in the seminary for 21 years. You know what my question is? It's the question our Lord Jesus asks, where are the nine? we got 900 going through the door. But you have about nine coming back who say, thanks. Thanks a lot. Man, Prof, I thank God every day for you, what you build into my life. 
An interesting experience not too long ago. Some of you know Dr. Chris Well at First Baptist Church in Dallas. About 11,000, 13,000, I guess, now members. We have about 125 full-time paid staff members. About $3.5 million budget each year. Small church. And some time ago, I took my students down to the church where we had an open session with Dr. Criswell. And some student asked him the question, Dr. Criswell, what would you say is the secret of the phenomenal growth of this church? Here it is in the downtown city area. Most of them are full and this thing's flourishing. How do you explain it? He said, I have one explanation. My Christian education director, Bill Souther. About a week later, we were down in the same building, only we had made the appointment with Mr. Souther to get the educational point of view. Well, you know, students. You know, the wheels go around until all of a sudden some guy says, Mr. Souther, what would you say is the secret of the phenomenal growth of First Baptist Church in Dallas? And without a moment's hesitation, he said, W.A. Cresswell. And you know, men, if I had spent 30 hours telling these guys, magnify the ministry of another man, I'd have never gotten through like those two guys did without any collusion, whatever. When's the last time you wrote a letter to a guy in Campus Crusade and said, man, I'm thrilled at the impact you're having on the campus. I was up there the other day with our NAV group and I got some feedback of what God's been doing with you. Keep it up, buddy. We're on your team and praying for you. See, we're almost like these guys in these churches. You know, the guy gets up in the denomination and he says, Well, beloved, we didn't do very much last year. We only had two additions. But thank the Lord, the street uh, church down the street didn't have any. You know, because this is our orientation. My colleague, who is a fantastic person, if you ever get to meet him, be sure to do it. He's now moving to Southern California to work at the Mariner's Church in Newport Beach. His name is Joe Aldrich. He is a remarkable person. And I had Joe set up my contacts with the police department. In my counseling course, you get a ride with a squad car several times during the course of the semester, either on a Friday night, a Saturday night, or a Sunday night, where you really get the picture of what's going on. So these guys really made it most educational and profitable. And so he asked them to give them some evaluations. So they wrote in the evaluations. And Joe wisely takes these evaluations, lifts them out, and sends a personal letter to the chief of police with all of these evaluations on them. You know where they landed? They landed in the editorial page of the Dallas Morning News. And the chief said, you know, I've been here now X number of years, and this is the first time I've had a Christian organization that sat down and wrote me a letter of appreciation for what we're trying to do. And it's so encouraging. Now, if they're not doing a job, believe me, you'll get 20 believers sending in something. But we don't encourage the people who are doing something we're for. And I think we're missing the boat, to be honest with you. 
What about people in need? Man, they're lonely people. They're frustrated people. you got widows in your community. Did it ever occur to you how many widows there are in the New Testament church? Well, you have large sections of the New Testament committed to this. It was a tremendous responsibility. And we've let everybody and his brother take over these responsibilities so that we don't have to get embroiled in them. What about divorced people? What do you do with the woman who is divorced in your area, who has two sons, who desperately need a male image, and you could take the kid out with you when you run your errands and do other things? Invite him over to your home when you take your boy out fishing. You see, make yourself, gentlemen, a person who's willing to identify with people and to be an enjoyable person to be around. And that often takes some doing, because frankly, many of us as Christians are a total bore. Some years ago, my wife and I and family had what has got to be the world's saddest Christmas. I mean, we had gifts till they were coming out of their, our ears. Man, I seen everybody and his brother sent us something. And here we are in a pile of all of these things, you know, and opening one after another. What else you got? And, no, you got more than I did. You know, we went the whole routine. Boy, and we all came out with that birdcage taste in our mouth. <laughs> I said to my wife that afternoon, we threw ourselves across the bed. I said, sweetheart, we will never have another Christmas like this. So help me God, we will never. <laughs> next Christmas we went to some friends of ours working in our social department I said look I want a couple families that really have need so they gave us some families with real needs and we adopted them as a family and I said to my kids at family council one night now look kids I don't want you giving them some second hand junk I want you giving them something that's really worthwhile something that would really be a sacrifice on your part well you should have seen the pile Stuff appeared and disappeared from that pile five times as the kid's trying to make up his mind, do I want to give it or not? <laughs> Going through the agony of it. And we finally put this thing together with some food. We got ourselves a little tree and some stuff my kids had made. And we went out to this little shack in West Dallas. I'll never forget as long as I live. I have a girl now in Wheaton College. It's so vivid she wrote a poem that's in an eight major magazine right now that came out of this experience. We were in this thing and this little gal standing here, Bev, with she was just, you know, so high, little dress like this, and we're putting on a worship service for him. The meaning of Christmas. My kid played his horn, and, and we sang some Christmas carols and told the story of Christmas and so forth. And uh, we gave this kid this toy. And you know, when that kid looked at that toy, man, look at that thing. We got out in the car. First thing one of my kids said was, Hey, Daddy, you know, I think that's the only toy he's got. And then little Beth spoke up from the back and she said, Daddy, it was so cold in there. She said, As I was standing, my dress kept blowing against the back of my legs. I said, Sweetheart, did it ever occur to you that it's always like that in there? You know, the interesting thing is you come back to your home and you sit down and suddenly every single thing you got takes on a new perspective. And the result was that we spent every Christmas from there on doing something of this type. And it's been, I would say, one of the most enriching things to us as a family. And I would highly recommend it to you in terms of the impact it will make on you as well as on your children.
By the way, don't be ashamed to have lost people in your home. We say, what in the world are you going to do if the guy smokes? Get an ashtray. (laughs) People say, when I suggest to them in home Bible classes, put out ashtrays. Oh, brother, this is a Christian home. I said, fine, but we've got pagans in here. If the guy isn't comfortable enough to smoke, he's not comfortable enough to know what in the world the message is. I said, am I scared to death that somebody's going to walk out my front door with a cigar say, hey, that's Professor Hendricks' home. Oh, really? There? Right. I told you that's how liberalism gets started in the seminary. <laughs> Go back to the same thing. I heard about the Navs. <laughs> Jesus Christ spent his time in Levi's house, and man, did they ever hit the fan. Boy, he's with sinners. Watch it. So, friend, you're in good company when you spend your time where Jesus spent his. I never need to apologize for doing what Jesus Christ did. Third, keep the home fires burning. Keep the home fires burning. 2 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. Did I say second? I meant first. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how in the world shall he take care of the church of God? Verse 12. Let deacons be husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. You know what this says to me, men? It says to me that you have a primary responsibility as a behavioral model. And that's particularly true if you're a disciple maker. Your disciples are going to do more of what you do than of what you say. You learned that yet? I remember when I get all shook up about this matter of using visuals. So I came into my class and I said, man, you ought to use visuals, man. It's very important to use. We're living in a highly visually oriented society, man. So I go out in the churches to find out, you know, what's happening out in their groups. They're getting up and say, friends, you ought to use visuals. It's very important to use visuals. We're a highly visually oriented society. You know what they're doing? They're doing what I'm doing, telling people what to do. Then all of a sudden I started to break up my classes into buzz groups or neighbor nudging. Or I got them involved in some other tech. Never said a word about it. Go out. You know what they're doing? First thing I want to do now is to break up in several groups here. They're doing what I'm doing. Not what I'm telling them to do. And I think that's particularly true in the home. Gentlemen, your ministry in your home is not apart from your ministry as a navigator. It is a part of it. There is no conflict of duty in Christian experience. And your call to be a navigator is not in conflict with your call to be a father or a husband. If it is, then you better start advocating celibacy for the navigator. And I remind you very pointedly, gentlemen, you repeated oaths to your wife before a public group that you have never repeated before anybody with respect to the Nats. And if you are serious about the oaths you take, then you better not view lightly that responsibility. I think it's possible to be so busy ministering to everybody else that you mortgage your own family. And that's sort of a diabolical distortion. 
And believe me, your home demands cultivation. It's not the product of an accident. And I think it affects every area. In fact, I think that it will chip away at you as a disciple maker. An interesting conversation not too long ago with a guy who trains executives in the 40,000 and above class. I said, how much does it cost you to train a man? He said, and we figured that he's not worth a dime to us till we've invested about 60,000 bucks in him. I said, then you screen him very carefully. He said, you wouldn't believe how we screen him. I said, what's the most important to you? He said, the most important thing to us is his family, his relationship to his wife, her viewpoint of his job. I said, why? He said, because we, can, we discovered that a man can live with absolutely any pressure in business, but not the pressure of home. If that guy's got to go home and live with hell, he'll never make it. That's the one thing you've got to have as a retreat. The boy, I can go home and there's a wife who loves me unconditionally and there are kids that I can enjoy. And I think this is a crucial key. I want to talk about this in a moment if we have time. I think it's awfully possible, gentlemen, that your ministry can be a cop-out. That if you are not producing here, you tend to compensate by producing in a ministry outside of your home. And to me, no amount of professional competency will compensate for parental failure. It's the kind of thing you cannot get over. Now, let's open it up for some questions and then we'll move into another area. We have time. Any of these you'd like to discuss? Any of these you have some suggestions to give? Some of you guys have some very worthwhile things you share with me, but you don't share sometimes in a group. Yes, sir. Uh, with Our, your study load and travel load and uh, uh, everything else, what are some of the things you do to keep uh, your family alive or whatever you want to say? Uh, to uh, really minister to your family. Number one, it is very high on my priority list. It is the highest thing I have. And the result is that I deliberately carve out time when I spend it exclusively with them. When I'm not at the NAVs, I'm not with Crusade, I'm not at the seminary, I'm not anywhere else. What I told you before in the sense of, I'm sorry, I can't come over and preach for you type of thing. I'm busy, which being interpreted means I'm going to play with my kids. Uh, I think, and we'll talk about this a little more, to me, the important thing is not the amount of time you spend with your kids. It's the quality of the relationship. It's what do you want to do. Now, every now and then we come to something like this and we get all shook up and so we go home and say, well, okay, come on, kids, let's go. we got to play. <laughs> You know, I got to cultivate my home life. Come on, now, I don't have a lot of time to horse around. Let's get the ball. You know, we just about throw it through them. Which being interpreted means, you know, there are hundred places I'd rather be than here. You know, you might as well be any one of the hundred places. You know what you got to do? You got to enjoy being with them. And the honest fact is, some of us don't enjoy being with our wives. Let's face it. The moment you start facing it, you're going to see a change. You really don't enjoy being with your wife. You know why? Because you're building so much of your life around your children 
that you're not building a relationship with your companion. The highest incidence of divorce right now is in the 40 to 50 group. You know why? These people have built all of their lives around children. And suddenly they get to this point and they're out of purpose. And they discover they're strangers. They don't even know each other. They're psychologically divorced. So, let's make it real. And they're bailing out like crazy right now. And I think this is the reason. If you stop to think this through, you'll never relate to it the same way. One half of your marriage will be spent without children. So you better spend some time developing a companionship with that woman. And as I've been talking to some of the guys, and I'm going to share with some of you with respect to counseling, though the same thing is true in other areas, some of you guys could have the most fantastic ministry on a team basis after you're out of children. My wife and I have, I think, the finest ministry I've had in my years in counseling. I'll share more of this with you. We do an awful lot of team counseling. The finest form of counseling I've ever engaged in, in the marriage field. I'm sitting there, my wife's sitting there. We work as a team. We're in a process of writing together. I'm hoping to put more of my stuff in print. My wife is a journalist. We spend a lot of our times developing. We read. What I can't read, she reads. We share with each other. Uh, we spend speaking engagements together in conferences where we team teach. And the interesting thing is she has as much of ministry as I do. But you see, this is the product of cultivation. My wife and I have spent hours and hours of time together. And we've developed interest together. And I've given up sports in order to spend time with her. So that all of my recreational program is built around my wife. We do everything together. We walk together. We do our exercises together, etc. For the simple reason that I want to build... I have very limited time. This brother's put his finger on I don't have a lot of time. I need more time than you do. And the result is, it's very quality experience. So, you know, we walk two miles every day. You know what we do? We memorize verses. We pray together. We share our concerns as a couple. And we get exercise.